there. Welcome to SpicFic NZ podcast, where we bring you the authors that aren't afraid to ask what if. I'm Matt Danaher, and I mostly write unpublished short stories. I'm Kura Carpenter. I'm a Dunedin fantasy author. My debut novel, The Kingfisher's Debt, has come, just come out recently. And I'm Nick Whitaker, and I have nine novels that are indie published at the moment. Welcome tonight to Eileen Mueller, who is a multi-award winning author of heart-pounding fantasy novels that keep readers turning the page. Her worlds are full of magic, love, adventure, and dragons. Love dragons. Eileen lives in a cave with four dragonettes and a shapeshifter, writing for young adults, children, and everyone who loves adventure. She's been kicking around the Spicfic NZ community since two, uh, 2013. Um, and I must say, there is a long list of awards, and there are way too many for us to actually read all of them out, which is amazing. Um, so, first of all, we're going to ask, uh, how did you find out about Specfic, and how long are you, uh, well, we know you've been a, mem- a member since 2013, but how did you find out about Specfic? I found them online. I was um, writing in my closet, along like a lot of other authors do. And I looked online and found that there was a website called Specfic NZ, and I didn't even know what Specfic meant. <laughs> so I contacted Ripley Passion, who was um, the president at that stage, but she was leaving the country, and said, oh, you know, I'll hand you over the next committee, but come along to ACON. So I did, came along to Oakland Trail in 2013. But I'd like to say thank you for hosting me tonight. I meant to say that at the beginning before we launched into questions, but thank you. Um, and oh, at that first con, I met... Um, a whole lot of key players in the um, Specfic community and had an opportunity to submit some short stories to two anthologies and they got accepted. That was great. Oh, that is good. So um, tell us a little bit about um, like your, your dragon books. You've done some rapid release and things like that. So what really goes into releasing uh, such high quality books in such a short manner of time? Well, I'll be really honest. I started writing my books 10 years ago and mm. I made sure two of them were written before I rapid released and I rapid released those two and then wrote some novelettes um, the two months after that. So I released in October and three weeks later in November and then three weeks later in December I released a novelette and then it was a little gap while I was getting my business set up and a whole lot of business stuff at the other end and um, then released another novelette and then, then I wrote my next one. So mid, it took me... 60 days to write my third novel. Wow. Yeah, 42 of those days were writing days. We have um, a lot of family stuff that happens in January and three birthdays in a week and all sorts of social stuff goes on and it was just impossible to write some of that week and there was another (laughs) thing, you know, I've got four kids, so it was a bit crazy. But um, yeah, so I wrote that book quite fast, but it was plotted out really, really well before I started. And I asked a lot of authors who write books in two weeks or three weeks how they did it and they came back with a whole lot of hints things that helped but I am a slow writer it just took me hours hours and hours every day working through the wee hours of the morning oh yeah to get my book with me yeah there's hope for slow authors it's just you just have to multiply the hours and squash them all in somewhere you tell yeah. us that writing's hard work <laughs> surprise surprise <laughs> yeah and the business side of it too that takes a lot of time as well 
yeah, which brings me to my next question is, uh, so what things did you do to market your later series that you felt that worked and maybe some things that didn't work? Okay, so I did a launch in New Zealand, which was fabulous fun, and we did a print run in New Zealand. So the series is Riders of Fire, and the first book is Azara, the second one is Dragon Hero, and the third one is Dragon Rift. And the fourth one, which will be coming soon, Ellipsis, I'm writing it, so it'll be quite a while, is Dragon Strike. And we launched Azara and Dragon Hero together in Wellington. We hired out a bowling club and we had probably around oh, 100 people turned up from the community. And I knew that launching locally was not going to be my main business model, that I wanted to go for international sales because there's a lot of work when you launch locally and when you print locally and when you have to distribute locally because I distribute everything myself along with my business partner and um, Alicia Ponder. So there is a lot of work involved in distributing locally. So you said the things that worked and the things that didn't. We had a fabulous launch. Um, I sold most of my first print run and had to print a second print run, which is great. That is uh, great. <laughs> it has been so much work and it has been just, um, you don't make millions doing it. So. No. Break even, make a little bit. So you're doing it for the satisfaction of having the local community know and love your books. Um, but in terms of the business model, uh, if I was purely capitalist and had a really good business head on me, <laughs> I would have just gone for the international model because once you put a book up, there's no costs on Amazon and it doesn't take much time to sell them. They all sell automatically in the background and the income comes in. So, so those are, um, that's, that's two different business models. So if I had to choose again, I'd probably still do a launch because I love having people around and having fun and you know, having people read my books. Um, but in terms of a business model, the more, the more business savvy way to go would be just to, just to market internationally. And in terms of international promotion, I guess that's what you're wanting to know. Yes, yes, definitely that stuff. Because <laughs> I'm the same as you. I'm also like trying to appeal to a more international market. Mm -hmm. So that's the kind of secrets I want to know. So there are a few secrets. And um, I've got a presentation actually. I should just open up in the background. Have a look at. Um, and some of, my, some, some of my tips, and I think I shared some of them um, up at our recent science fiction fantasy convention. Um, and some of my tips, are to know your genre and know what your readers expect and make sure you meet that, those genre expectations. And part of that is making sure you have a cover and a, a, um, and the cover copy or the blurb as some people call it, up mm -hmm. in the description up on Amazon that they match. And that when you open the front page, what people are reading in the first four or five pages matches the expectations. If you want to take them in a slightly different direction, that's your prerogative once you get deeper into the book. But when people are making a purchasing decision, um, you want to make sure that they're getting what they expect. So if you've got something that looks like a military sci-fi when you open the front of it, and it actually is a vampire, werewolf, romance, not a military sci-fi, you're going to have all the military <laughs> sci-fi people bagging you and giving you one-star reviews, right? Yeah. Yeah, and part of the way of knowing your genre is to study who the top authors are in that genre and to read their work. Um, and yeah. also, if you're a fan of that genre and you know it, and it's easy to write in it. I've always loved reading books, but it's easy. The next thing to do is to make sure there is a market that's going to be sustainable. So you can look around on Amazon, see what sort of rankings are in the categories that you want to write to, and with the categories that you've written your book in. And if the rankings are way down under 100,000 for the top bestseller, then you know there's not a lot of people buying that book, a couple of sales a month or a couple of sales every week. And you really want to try and aim for, um, for a niche where you know you're going to be able to you know you're going to be able to make an income because ultimately most of us would love to 
make a full-time income or income off writing yep <laughs> yep would be nice wouldn't it yeah <laughs> so that's another thing to do just to look at your market um the next thing is setting up a newsletter list, a newsletter where your readers can sign up and get a couple of free books and get to know you a little bit so that when you have a new release out they're going to be keen to buy your book and there's lots of different techniques and ways to do that um, and another prong which is prong number four of <laughs> my strategy was to organize cross promotions and um, marketing promotion with other authors yeah we're really lucky writing in spec fic because there's a very strong community um, of authors that like to promote each other's work internationally. Yeah. And you can look them up on Facebook. If you type in um, newsletter swap, SFF, something will pop up once if you to you'll get, you'll get yes. groups popping up. Um, yeah, there are a good group out there. Yeah, yeah. So which groups have you found, Nick? Well, I'm um, in different uh, science fiction groups as well, but I also like, uh, I'm also in the 20 books to 50K group. Mm -hmm. and writing girls and uh, clean indie reads and things like that. I they all most of those too. So there's some really good groups online and they you just put it out there like, hey, anybody got? And I've got some really cool things in there. And so, yeah, you can reach out. Everybody wins in those situations. I mean, you and I have swapped before. I've, I've, um, yes, yes, we have. <laughs> I can see the cover in my head, but I'm really bad at titles. Um, yeah. So I promoted that one. I so if you promote each other's stuff in the newsletter, when I first started promoting, um, I'll be honest, I set up my newsletter just before I got to that first SpecFic meeting, you know, that first um, Open Share in 2013. I set up my newsletter before that, and I was really keen to get people to sign up, and I had a whole lot of people sign up, and then over the years, it all just fell off because I didn't do anything with it, and people started yeah. unsubscribing. And so I only had, I had less than 200 people in October last year when I launched and I hadn't migrated my email service to the provider I wanted. So I was doing it after I had launched the books. I just ran out of time. I'd set a launch date and I was doing this all in the back end. It was absolutely crazy. So I don't advise you to do that. Get that, that in a row before you launch. Make sure you set up. Um, I just was in a reader community in the last um, 30 hours, or probably 48 hours, um, on a Facebook group um, of fans who love epic fantasy and indie fantasy of all sorts of flavours. And there's over 2,000 people in the group and they asked me if I would hold a game to do with my uh, book. So I did a Riders of Fire, you know, you are the director and it's a Riders of Fire casting game. So everybody yep. cast different actors as um, either the dragons or the two main characters in my series. And we had so much fun. Um, yeah. But once again, I was saying, do you want to join? You know, they could put ARC in their comments if they wanted to join my um, advanced reader list and get advanced reader copies, which ARCs, um, you know, from me to review my books. And they were typing ARC, ARC, ARC. And once again, I was saying to them, right, I'm, I'm just about to read, I'm just about to change up my ARC process. So I'll email you in a few days. <laughs> so it seems to be that I do these things and then I'm scrambling at the back end to get Right. Um, yeah. Now you've got some beautiful covers. I really, really like your your new series' covers. So what was it like getting the artist and tell us about the process of getting your, your covers? So five or six years ago, I started making notes on which art or which covers I saw online and which ones I liked. And I started noting them all down. And then I lost that document. So when it came time to get my covers, I had a particular, new, I know, it's great, right? Um, I had a particular New Zealand artist that I wanted um, to contract. I was just about to say, don't ask me how I lost that document. It was one of those spoke <laughs> So I had a particular artist that I wanted to contract in New Zealand. I had him in mind for years. And he said, yep, he was keen. And I contacted him and he said, sorry, 
I'm not doing covers anymore. I've got really big graphic design contracts on with government departments and I'm just way too busy. Thanks. And I spoke to Lee Murray and said, oh no, Lee, what am I going to do? He can't do my cover. And she went, oh, why don't you try covers by Christian, which is Christian Benton. And I said, oh yeah, okay. So I went and had a look and I thought, oh, he's probably going to be some guy. I've never, you know, he's probably going to be some guy who doesn't know what he's doing. And I logged onto his website and I went, oh my goodness, all those covers I've been admiring for years. <laughs> I wish I had a cover like that. And there were so many in my genre. And I've just like, I'd contact him and said, when are you free? And um, Christian does all his messaging and stuff via Facebook, which a lot of people do now. A lot yeah. of the beginning of last year when I contacted him, there weren't that many people. You know, I was constantly logging into my chat and having to check my chat all the time. But um, yeah, he does beautiful covers, absolutely gorgeous covers, and in a number of genres. He does horror, um, apocalyptic, dystopia, paranormal romance. He's really good at that. All those sort of academy series that are coming out at the moment, and lots and lots of fantasy and epic fantasy. Yeah, because they're great. So I take it that you celebrated when you got your little orange flag on Amazon. So <laughs> did no, I, you can't remember. I probably rang someone up and went, squeal. <laughs> but the orange flag went away pretty quickly and then it came back and then it came back and then it just stayed like I had yeah. it. Um, for, us, uh, for us newbies, what is an orange flag on Amazon? Oh, it's a bestseller. And uh, when you look, oh, at the, wow. look in a top 100 in the category, yeah. Um, wow. you'll, you'll see a little orange flag for the for book number one. And when you go and look at your Amazon listing, you won't see them on mine at the moment because the books have been out a while. But when they're new and a lot of people are buying them and there's a bit of hype in the market, then they can get pushed up. Uh, some categories are really tough to score in. So I deliberately chose some categories that were, that were very big and had amazing big authors in them. And I chose some categories that were smaller where I thought, they had simple, comparable authors. I'm speaking too fast, sorry. <laughs> they had comparable authors, but there weren't that many authors in that category, and that enabled me to write. But I was stoked. There were people in there that I thought I would never, ever get my books ranking above theirs, and my books are up. So, yeah, I was absolutely thrilled. So Azara stayed up there for about three months. Mm -hmm. And on and off, someone else would steal it for a day, and I'd think, oh, dang. And by then, I knew half of them. I'd write to them and go, yeah, you whipped me. <laughs> and then my friend Arthur Slade got into the category and he just kept whipping me consistently so <laughs> yeah um my biggest boost was when I saw my book up against it was J.K. Rowling, Christopher Paolini and me I was number three wow. Azara was number three and I was absolutely thrilled now a hint for authors out there perspective authors you can have your book in 10 Amazon categories it will only ever show in the top um, three categories on your page. So the two that you select um, in the back of your metadata and then the next the high, next highest scoring one. And um, But you can have it in 10 categories. So if you go and hunt around on the top 100, then you can actually see your book if it gets up into those, onto those top 100 pages. You'll see that it actually is in lots of different categories. Getting onto the top 100 page is really hard. Yeah. Mm. And, uh, sure. Advertising. I used a lot of Amazon advertising too. I started doing it a couple of years ago. So been around the block a bunch. that's something that interests me actually because um from my day job i do facebook adverts and stuff like that oh you'll be great and um yeah i'm just curious about how does that work for amazon so for facebook if you want to do facebook ads you can do very small amounts of money um and then you can spend more and you can sort of segment your audience and the segmentation tools aren't amazing but they're they're okay you can select you can segment by age by region by interest um, is it similar for Amazon and is it similar kind of really small amounts so you can kind of do A-B testing? And 
things like that? Um, with Amazon, you're A-B testing. There, there are different things you can do. There's a few different types of ads, and some of them they've um, some of them are, they've actually changed and gotten rid of. They've got some new ads. Mm. Some called lock screen ads, which appear on your Kindle. Now, if you're going to go for those, um, your lock screen ad will just appear on somebody's Kindle. You know, when it's when it, when it opens up, but you don't know if you're targeting a the particular type of reader you want because you can't really segment it. No, I'll tell you what, that does not work because no. I always get, I only get on my lock screen, I get romance novels. Oh, who's been reading on your Kindle? <laughs> definitely only me, as yeah. far as I know. Um, I wouldn't read romance. Daughters have deep pockets. <laughs> <laughs> One to consider, maybe not to, re maybe not to recommend that. So I don't go for lock screen ads, I go for sponsored product ads, which uh, mm. I'm sponsoring my own books in, a, in an ad and you can, choose your keywords and you choose authors, titles, subject matter, anything you want. And I advise people to do a, um, a deep, wide sort of approach when they first get up an advertisement and use it as a test and put a budget in and go and see what actually works and then stop that ad, download all your data and then only pick out the terms that were really, really working and being um, relatively profitable for you to actually go ahead and then run a smaller, more targeted campaign and you can put your budget up and everything. So doing a test campaign is really important. Having said that, Amazon used to um, have a minimum bid of 25, not a minimum, sorry. They used to have a suggested bid of 25 cents. And when people were um, using that, you could often get bids for 8 cents and 10 cents. And so it was quite a low bid to get someone to buy your book. And um, then they started a suggested bid back in September last year, I think it was, of 75 cents. And all the new people coming onto Amazon just went and clicked on it. And automatically all the bids were going up to 75 cents per, per click, which means if you, it takes you 10 people to click you selling a book for $7.50 cost. <laughs> if one person buys it, if 10 people click on one buy. So um, there, you have to find quite niche words that other people maybe haven't thought of. And there's a lot of experimentation going on, but there are some really good um, Facebook groups again for um, finding out more about Amazon advertising. Anyway, so that's some of that. Advertising is quite important too, and cross-promotion with other authors getting books locked in. Mm, excellent. I wanted to ask, um, and this might seem a redundant question, really considering spectacles and fantasy authors, but why dragons? What do you think it is that draws readers to dragons? I think it's a sense of adventure, and also I think the bond between, you know, human and animal, um, and the fact that you can... I mean, have you ever wanted to fly? All three of you, either any of you ever wanted to fly? Uh, yeah, yes. of course. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, like, I mean, like without an aeroplane. No, like we're just being in the air and flying. I used to paraglide, so um, you know, dragons were a natural extension of what I liked doing. Oh, <laughs> so, yeah, you know, whizzing through the air, looking down at the ground, and the whole yeah. thrill, adrenaline buzz you get when you're up in the sky. Um, I didn't paraglide for very long, but um, I've been a few times. It's really nice. I think I've had an hour and a half of air time. It's such an amazing feeling, but it's also that bond, you know, there's that whole, um, either you're fighting a dragon or you're bonded with a dragon and you get, you know, and there's that whole unconditional love and understanding one another through telepathy. And I think people love that. I think they love that whole sense of adventure with a buddy at your side who can take you way beyond your human uh, capabilities by soaring through the air and understands you implicitly. So I think there's that mm. an emotional need for reading. Dragon Realms. Uh, which interestingly was a You Say Which Way book, and we had an earlier chat with um, author Kevin Berry about that particular genre. So Dragon Realms was your first children's book. What did you learn writing that book? Mm -hmm. And 
how have you put what you learned since into creating your new and very successful series, Riders of Fire? So Dragon's Realm um, is like a pick a path or a choose your own adventure, but it's called You Say Which Way. So every time you read a short scene, you get to make a choice at the end of it. And one of the beauties when you're an author um, writing a, a You Say Which Way adventure is that usually you have to take hundreds of plot ideas and discard them to find the best one. And when you have hundreds of plot ideas, you can use nearly all of them. You know, if some of them, some of them are lame, you're not going to use them. But you can use all of your ideas. The hardest thing was tracking them all and making sure you weren't going to be, you know, running over a character somewhere that you needed somewhere else later or <laughs> dumping them in a river by a dragon. <laughs> so, and the other tricky thing was that you're writing reader as the character. So it's always in second person. You're writing you. You hop on a dragon, you fly, you have to decide, now it's time for you to decide what you're doing. So you have to think a lot about um, about a reader's perspective and what they will enjoy and what sort of autonomy they enjoy. And I think that may have influenced um, some of my Writers of Fire series as well. But I think one of the biggest influences on my writing has been being in a critique group with a lot of Speak for NZ writers. Um, and I was in two different critique groups, and we all, one's Monkey Lab and the other one's Clark's Critters, and we met three times a month, and each gave each other sort of three to 5,000 words. Not everybody would every time, but um, you could be critiquing sort of 30 to 50,000 words a month for other people, and doing that for three or four years, which is um, how long we did all that, your, your writing comes up by a huge night from different feedback and everyone's perspective. So, I think that's really valuable. Oh yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. Critique groups are fabulous if you get into a, a good one. And do, you know, I didn't have one, so I tried to form one originally. <laughs> Ended up forming yes. one that lasted for years. I didn't expect that either. Oh, that's brilliant. Mm. Which one did you form? Was that the Monkey Lab? No, Clark's Critters. I joined Monkey Lab after that. So, and right, right. Alicia Ponder and I, you know, she's my business partner, and we've been working together for a while. But um, we were in both of them, so, so we were critiquing each other, a lot of each other's work every month, which is quite cool. So you get to know the other business writing style and their critiquing style quite well. Do you know if it's kids buying your books or adults buying them for their children? And does that affect your marketing choices? Uh, when you're marketing, I think you have to have both in mind. You want something that's mm -hmm. appealing for kids. You also want something that adults are going to like. So Dragon's Realm, you say which way adventure, uh, has bullying things right on the field. The first line, it opens with, hey, fart face, right? So kids are going to love that. Parents are going to love the fact that the book has anti-bullying themes and it's not preachy at all. It's complete fun and, and it's really tongue-in-cheek and there's all sorts of crazy things that happen in it. So it keeps the kids engaged. When you're marketing, you need to be aware of both aspects. And I think um, my publisher for the You Say Which Way adventure, um, Deb Potter at The Fairy Tale Factory, does a brilliant job of appealing to adults and she writes for blurbs, but to kids when she shows the covers because that's what's going to sell it to a kid. So I think that's, right. that's a really good... That sounds like a good combination. Yeah, and with my current books, Writers of Fire, um, Christian made sure that the covers appealed to both. I remember saying to him, it doesn't look like a typically YA cover, but I love it. And he said to me, I've made it cross genre. He said, there's so many readers that love dragons. He said, this is going to appeal to both. And he's been right. He's been fabulous. He knows his markets really, really well. Just coming back briefly to the critique group, because um, I've, I've been in several face-to-face uh, -face and online critique groups, and to be honest, I'm desperate to join a decent one, but um, just finding one in Auckland is, is, a, is problematic. So um, just in terms of the two you were part of, were they, were they both face-to-face, -face or were, was one online and one face-to-face? -face 
Okay, they were all face-to-face, but what we would do is, um, and we got to know each other really well, so we trusted each other implicitly with our work and you know, trusted each other's judgments, which is a really important part of the process. If you're in a critique group and you're not comfortable, then it's probably not. And I know people who have online ones that work like that and find them brilliant, but I had two face-to-face groups. So we would meet in the library every second Friday, and by Tuesday, Wednesday, hopefully not Thursday night, we'd be emailing each other. We'd email each other our, our sections to be critiqued. And some people would return them online before we got there. And other ones would do them by paper because they just like to critique by paper. And we'd all turn up and discuss them together. And at the beginning, I think it was a lot of going through stuff line by line, talking about it. And then near the end, we had one particular critique group, which is disbanded um, because Lee Murray um, who I invited to the critique group years ago and she moved to Wellington, um, moved back to Tauranga and then we were meeting on Skype for quite a while and then we just, everybody was getting too busy. Yeah, we, we closed that one down for a while. It's on hiatus until people are ready to critique again. We had two, two, two of the members of the group just had too much in the comments. Um, but that worked really, really well. Meeting together, it gave us a chance to connect as writers and to get to know one another and our family situations and also, you know, make good friends with everybody, but also to provide that support that only other authors come to provide to each other because we understand the battle of writing in the corner, you know, in the corner of the closet while the world goes on around you. I really need to get my act together in terms of getting a, trying to get a quick group together. In yeah, it's hard in terms of time. We've, um, the other critique group, Monkey Lab, we used to meet from one to five on a Saturday afternoon, four and a half or five hours of critiquing. And most of it was around the table, you know, one person saying one thing after another. And we just met recently and said, look, this is too time intensive for everybody. Started to do is now we're just going to pull out three or four points and then brainstorm. So we're now going to change the focus of that critique group. You know, we're all at a level where everyone's writing really well. Um, sure, there's things in everyone's manuscripts you can pick up all the time, um, but we're just going to pass each other the work, pre-critiqued when we get there, and just talk about anything that the author needs to brainstorm if they're stuck on the scene, if there's a scene that's not working. So we're going to change that to a sort of a two-hour or a one-and-a-half-hour brainstorming session and a, and a coffee catch-up. Um, so I think the critique group's got to adapt to what your needs are. You know, if you want to put one on hiatus for a while and come back to it later, and everyone agrees on that, then that's fine. If you want to sort of change the nature of it, then it's important to have people you can discuss things with. Yeah. That's the thing, I think. Certainly in Auckland, um, a lot of them meet during weekdays yeah. and they're incredibly long. And I just yeah, think so so if you can pass your critique, have... if you can find a group where you pass your critique electronically, you know, maybe you give it a week before you meet, if you're meeting once a month, and or two weeks beforehand, and people pass it back to you and you have time to read it. And if you get together, it's a quick copy yeah. and, hey, I didn't understand it, or hey, does anyone mind brainstorming this? And you've got it with your agenda before you get there so you stay focused and get the work done, still have some fun. Exactly. On a completely different subject, um, at GeyserCon, I was lucky enough to, to go to a workshop with, with the woman who created your uh, map. Mm-hmm. Um, of, Ava Fairhall. Ava Fairhall, that's her name. Yeah. yeah, and we'll definitely put a link to her website um, or contact details on, on the show notes afterwards. Um, the map's amazing, massive, um, and um, really detailed. So we were just interested to know what kind of processes you went through to get the map. We've already recently spoken to Mark McCabe, um, who was quite interesting talking about uh, the use of maps in his book, but very interested to hear about it from you as well. Okay, so I drew my own map 10 years ago, and it was very, I looked at all these map making tutorials online, and it was very rough. Um, I sort of had this rough how to draw a mountain, how to draw this and that, and I threw everything onto a page. 
And I thought it's probably not even geographically possible. <laughs> you know, just me throwing where I thought things would be. And then I went and wrote my story because it was easier to write a story with a map than without one. Or I think I drew it on the way. I met Ava online in Holly Lyle's writing school, which I started um, oh, before I even came to speak Vic. I started doing some of Holly's writing classes because I realized there were gaps and I needed to up my game. Um, and there was an earthquake one night and um, in Wellington, I remember sitting, I was on, on the forum and Ava wrote, oh my goodness, it was just an earthquake. And I went, oh, are you in Wellington? <laughs> you know? And um, we realised that we actually knew each other. So when it came time to do a map, I knew that she worked for UV Design School. So I pinged her a note and said, hey, and she goes, bring your map into town, come meet me for coffee. She had a look at it and she put all these coloured highlighters and scribbled all over it. And she took it away and made something really rough. And she said, I've got a really rough map for you. And I remember someone saying to me, oh, rough, oh, I don't know if it comes to sound that good. And when we saw what her rough map was, we were like, wow, this woman is amazing. Um, her rough map looked very, you know, it was something someone said to me, I thought that was going to be what the finished product looked like. <laughs> anyway, um, but we went back maybe seven or eight times. We added things in, we changed things. Then she came to me with 30 different fonts and said, what fonts do you want? And we mucked around with the fonts. So there were, there were layers to her map building. She did um, the basic outline of the mountains and the rivers and everything first and then put the trees in. What sort of tree would you like? And comes back with 16 different types of trees. You know, so she was, she's incredible. She's absolutely amazing and I would recommend her. She works full time. She writes as well. I don't know if she's got space for 100 people, to, you know, 100 people this year. Um, maybe she could give up a day job if she was there. And her rates are really reasonable. She's made maps for several people. I don't know if we'll have people to work. So it was a detailed process. At some stage, I'd like to put a blog post up showing all the different various stages of scanning, the, you know, scanned, scanned images of all the different maps we have to get it to happen. I haven't got there yet. Too busy rushing. Sticking with a visual theme. Mm -hmm. Um, the bright blade box set, which is um, you talk about on your website a bit, that yeah. looks amazing, right? So you've got books, you've got dragon models, you've got like glossy card things. I mean, what's what's gone into putting that together? Is that is that expensive? So the bright blade box, um, I I am just so lucky that I'm connected with this international community. The bright blade box is something that Tiger Herbert, who writes dragon fiction and has bright blade press, it's like a tongue twister has Bright Blade Press put together a Bright Blade box and he asked me if I wanted to be part of it. And he said, we've got three really big name authors giving a book and um, we've got some, going to get some dragon swag. Would you be keen? And I went, sure, I'm in. And when I saw the big name authors, I was thrilled because there were um, two other women that I've been working with who, um, I don't know how, quite how to say her name, but it's Alicia Kopecki, I think you say her name, and um, Sarah K.L. Wilson. And they're both... Um, they rank right up there, right at the top of, um, I think, I think one of Alicia's books sits at about 500 on Amazon, has since she launched it. Um, and I was just absolutely thrilled. So I told him I would send him a copy of Azara and he wanted an autograph. So instead of me sending it from New Zealand and spending 80 bucks on a book, <laughs> sending a book to, to the States, we sent him the Amazon version and I, I did an autographed insert, which he's then you know, stuck inside the front of the book. So, yeah, that was really amazing. I mean, there are so many different things that people do um, as authors to build their newsletters. So he's advertising on Facebook and we're all sharing it and um, people then get to go and sign up um, and he will be distributing an email once they sign up and, and tick um, 
tick which authors they'd like to follow and then those authors get their email addresses and most people have signed up. So it's a promotional tool and it's a wonderful one because it, it features books and giveaways that have been, um, I was involved in one that was Lord of the Rings swag, which was quite cool because then I got to write to all those people about, you know, Lord of the Rings and Wellington and got photos of us with Smog and or Smog. <laughs> and the trolls and I sent those to the readers but the um, activity rate on those are lower because a lot of people who were interested in that is because it was movie swag and not necessarily just books so um, having a promotion which features mainly dragon books has been really good yeah so there's lots of different ways that you can promote things and there are people in the states who are happy to run things and have your books be part of them and then you, your name starts to be branded alongside those other authors as well who are quite big in the drama quite neat yeah it's amazing that kind of mixed media approach is just um there's so many people out there that'll just they'll just go for that mm. on the basis of one of the authors plus the models and then they'll get to read your work as well and you know, hope for, hopefully buy more of it yeah so only one person wins the actual physical box of books in oh them. okay there's only one of them there's one of them but everybody who signs up for it you get the email address that's part of the conditions they get to yeah. choose which authors they follow they tick a box and and they'll go and look at your work and then decide, yep, I'll follow them, I'll follow them. And then, then they become part of your readership on your mailing list. Oh, I see. So that's similar to the summer book box giveaway, giveaway that you signed yeah, up Yeah, that's part of that. But that's a different one. That's, that's yeah. mainly traditionally published books, um, fantasy authors. So um, I got involved in that one too. Not sure if I'll do that one again. What I do is I import all these different lists into, my, um, into the back end of my newsletter and I keep them all on separate lists and they will join my main list. But... Um, I track what the what the open rates and click rates are from each of those different groups, and that will help me to decide whether I want to be involved in one of those promotions again. There's a small fee when you're involved because you're helping pay for advertisements and things, and you're helping sponsor actually. Yeah, it's yeah. just another marketing tool. We'll see how yeah, those things yeah. go. No, that's um that was a question I meant to ask under the mailing lists uh, subject actually was which um what's what mailing list software do you use? Oh, I use MailerLite. I love them. Uh, they're great. They've got a great chat feature. You can set up amazing automations. My Lord of the Rings automation makes people's minds boggle when they say it because they had so many different points at which, yes, they become an active, uh, you know, a very active Lord of the Rings um, person or that right down to inactive to someone who's just watching. And there's lots of different emails that went out. I think some of them will get four or five emails. If, you click on, if they clicked on things immediately and were keen, then they'd only get one or two. And then they go onto my main list. But there were lots of different specs in there. So. Every time you have a decision point in a flowchart, it's like you say which way adventure. You have two options. <laughs> and, then you're, and so that, that actually, by the way, is one of the tricky things about writing interactive fiction is every time you have a decision point, you've got to write two more stories, one for each. And then every time you make the next decision point, there's two more. So they start spawning. <laughs> like little zombies running around. You've got to end up writing. Yeah, I think I did um, Dragon Throne has 22 endings. I think that was the first one with the most endings to date. And that's not just 22 scenes, that's 22 end scenes. So you've got to write all the scenes beforehand to get to that story. But yeah, the same with a flowchart. So it's just how you bring your readers on board, how you let them get to know you, and what sort of um, activities you have for them to get engaged in. Some people may email only once a month or only when they've got new releases. Um, I know one author that does that. He um, only releases books three four times a year and he does a massive release every time he, you know, um, releases a book but in between he doesn't actually write to them a lot he has a when they sign up they might get um they have a 
trickle of emails, sort of maybe 10 or 12 emails that he sends them that are all automated. That's quite extreme. <laughs> um, but then after that, it's just quiet until he has a release. And then when he does the release, he teams up. Well, the last release, he teamed up with 122 authors and he put a $100 Amazon gift card on the giveaway. So that's further down my web page somewhere. And I was lucky enough to be one of the authors he invited. And um, yeah, I had a, I had a huge um, a huge number of people join up to my mailing list as a result of being involved in his one. So knowing who the players are in the industry, and you know um, that was done by a book funnel have you guys heard of book funnel yes, yes. okay have any of you got a book funnel subscription oh yes okay so <laughs> it's very <thing>. useful <laughs> so they're handy for giving away free books you can set up download pages very easily so that your readers and they want to when they get a free book from joining up to your mailing list they can go to book funnel and download it but one of the beauties of book funnel is um being involved in cross promotions with other authors mm -hmm. it's very easy to find them i looked the other day and, and just in science fiction fantasy there were probably 30 or 40 different ones that i could choose from and then you apply to be a part of those promotions and then everybody on the promotion is emailing out the the web link which has your free book on it and you get their email you get the email addresses of the people who click through to get your book you get um you get quite a few people that click and then don't end up wanting to give the email address so you don't you know they don't get your book and then you get quite a few that do sign up so you know depending on how well you cover how good you cover in your copy are <laughs> depends on yeah they're surprisingly um active like i expected their freebie kind of people but uh, quite a few of the people that come from book funnel they're avid readers and they just want to find a new author and so they're actually quite quite um, good with the click-throughs and things like that, which yeah. I was surprised by. Mm. And if you track each of your book funnel promotions with a different landing page, so I have a different one for every promotion I'm involved in, um, it takes another 10 or 15 minutes to do that, to set it all up maybe, or, or you know, four or five, depending on how fast you are. Um, it takes a little bit more time to set it up, but if you do that, then you know exactly, ah, the promotion I did with this author was really successful. And when you see the name come up again, you can do it again. Um, there may be some, there was one particular one I did a, um, it was a find a new genre promotion, so everything was in it. Thrillers, murder mysteries, contemporary romance, science fiction painting. I thought, I thought, why not? I'll just go for this, we'll try it. Um, and I did it and it went well, but I noticed that I didn't get as many sign-ups as I usually would just from straight fantasy ones. So I sort of thought, okay, that, that's good to try and find new readers who want to taste a different genre and see what it's like, but you don't know that they're going to be the whale readers in the and that's the other thing too that is amazing i thought when i got into the indie community that people would be competitive realize you know it, it was really really naive of me but they're wonderful because you cannot satisfy a reader unless you can write a book a day which is how fast a lot of readers read um you can't satisfy your reader's appetite so if you share them with other people and you're sharing each other's readers and they all get to know everybody it actually builds a, a really lovely community online yeah yeah it's difficult to saturate the market um and on that note um what have you got coming up for the rest of the year okay um at the moment i've just been nominated for the epic fantasy fanatics awards which are brand new awards that have been set up this year for um the reader's choice awards so been very active on Facebook trying to promote that and I was lucky enough to get 100 nominations for Zara quite early in the piece and my newsletter were amazing every time I sent out a newsletter I'd get another 20 or 30 nominations it was just fantastic and Dragon Hero was nominated as well so I've got to wait and see what happens with that only 32 books got in out of um, there were quite a few nominated so that was um, very lucky and that's happening this year 
I'm also going to the 20 Books to 50K conference in Las Vegas. Um, I'm jealous. Yeah, I know. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, it was quite funny. Um, I saw that... I saw that they were taking hotel bookings and it was crazy. It was like the hotel was selling mm-hmm. out before the conference had opened up. Yep. And I thought to myself, well, I'm going to book the hotel. The hotel is so cheap. It was 49 US dollars a night for a twin room. And I thought it's so cheap and they have absolutely no, um, you know, there's no penalty for cancelling your booking up until, I don't know, three days beforehand. So you get all your money back. Wow. So I thought, well, apart from the exchange rate changing, I'm not going to lose a lot. I might lose five bucks on the exchange rate if it goes dire. So I booked my hotel and then I sat on it thinking, what am I going to do? Am I going to go? Am I not? And I decided I would. And I had it booked in my diary. I had to get up at, was it four or six in the morning or something crazy? And I'm a night owl. So when you're going to bed at two or three in the morning, getting up at six is not that easy. <laughs> it just so happened that night I was up doing the final edits on Dragon's Rift. Was it Dragon's Rift? Yeah, it must have been because it was March. Um, I was up doing the final edits on Dragon's Rift when a girlfriend pinged me from the States and she lived here in Wellington years ago and she said, I can't get into the conference. And I'm like, what? Is it open already? Have I missed it? And, and I said, you know, you t- it was only 4 a.m. <laughs> and here was me doing the final. <laughs> you know, the proofreader had gotten back to me and I was just going through. Kevin Berry, he's a brilliant proofreader, by the way. I think his books are closed at the moment because he's a bit busy. But um, so he was, he, he'd given me back my proof and my proofreading, you know, the errors and things and made the odd suggestion. I was going through doing those final edits. So I just stayed up. I thought it was crazy. I can't go to bed. I finished at 4 30. I can't go to bed at 4 30 and get up at 6. I just won't do it. So I stayed up and I, I signed in at 6 to book. And they'd advised us to have all of our conference details copied and written into a Word document so you could copy and paste. Yeah, I managed to get in and she got in too. And then we found out at 6 30 that it had sold out. And they said it usually sells out in three or four hours. So make sure you've got your copy, you know, your details ready, <laughs> cut and paste. And, and I had mine ready months beforehand. <laughs> but it was just, um, I found. I put myself in a genre all on my own. Because what's your genre? I should just put like fantasy. But I was so used to dealing with the, the niche groups that I market to. I wrote young adult epic fantasy, and I was the only one in my genre. <laughs> so I said, I think you need to change my genre to fantasy. <laughs> Quite funny. Yeah, you know, could you have a genre meetups? I'd be meeting yeah. on my own. <laughs> one, uh, we're we're too jealous now to ask any more questions about that. <laughs> oh, um, <laughs> our, our standard. My brain's going to get back. <laughs> A standard closing question is always, um, Eileen, what have you personally found is the best thing about belonging to Specfix NZ? Oh, Specfix's been amazing. I should have mentioned these things earlier. So I, my first work got published in um, two anthologies that weren't Specfix anthologies, but they were done by Specfix people. And by coming to that initial um, science fiction and fantasy convention, I met those people and got accepted to those anthologies. I've made amazing um, friends, really good lifelong friends through SpecFit. And I've also um, oh, won a SpecFit contest before I even turned up to my first conference. I actually won a contest, which gave me the confidence that someone, and that was for Azara. And that was years ago, back in 2013. So yeah, Grace Bridges ran a, a contest with her small press, Splashdown Press, and with an American press as well, they co-ran it. So that gave me the confidence to know that someone actually would want to read my story. So Specfic has been amazing for me, absolutely incredible. Great networks, um, good publishing opportunities and fantastic people. Um, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much. Oh, and where can people find you online? EileenMullerAuthor.com and that's Eileen Muller, M-U-E-L-L-E-R, um, at Eileen Muller NZ on Twitter because there's an Eileen Muller who's a famous photographer. <laughs> that's not me. And she got my Twitter handle first and also I'm on Facebook.